Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. team, welcome back to Wikipedia episode 4. Now today I'm super excited to bring you guys a discussion I had with two great mates of mine, Dr. Cliff Harvey and Bella Marinkovic. So anyone in New Zealand will be well familiar with both Bella and Cliff as they're like the powerhouses behind the nutrition online store where I get all of uh, pretty much all of my mushroom supplements and my UCAM products and my NeuroCore device which I'm using to help with my shoulder um, and also of course the Holistic Performance Institute which is New Zealand's premier online learning um, platform for nutrition and health related information uh, and certificates. So Dr. Cliff Harvey, PhD, looking at ketogenic diets and, and everything associated. New Zealand's keto expert, I would say. He is a nutritionist, naturopath, author, researcher, scientist, former wrestler. He's got a wealth of experience and has been um, in and around the health scene in New Zealand for over 20 years now. Such a smart guy. So pleased to be able to um, call him a mate and um, rely on him for like information and just awesome conversations, as you will hear. And then uh, his right hand, I will say woman, uh, Bella Marinkovic, clinical nutritionist. She's the content manager and marketer for the Holistic Performance Institute and she also is the kind of she is the nuts and bolts behind the nutrition online store. So um, our conversation today is just answering your questions actually you submitted um, probably many months ago on Facebook. I got a heap of questions but as you can see when listening to this podcast we get through a couple of them today because that's the nature of how we sit down and chat. We just seem to go off on tangents but I think tangents that will be super practical for you to um, put into place with whatever you're doing nutrition wise. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Cliff and Bella. Cliff, Bella, hello, how are you both? We're good. Good morning, good morning Dr. Uh, Dr. Willard. <laughs> We have a bunch of awesome questions from some people who kind of share our same social media space. And when I told them that I was going to talk to the dream team that is uh, Cliff and Bella, they were beyond excited. And um, I quite like the opportunity just to get you both on a call so we can kind of basically talk about what we would geek out about in normal everyday life, but uh, record the conversation at the same time. Yep. Great idea. It's a good idea. We should probably have our like phones recording all the time. I think so, Cliff. And then we should like put it on a YouTube channel and get a million subscribers. <laughs> then again, I might say something inappropriate or controversial. That's why we like listening to you, Cliff, because you <laughs> you're almost guaranteed to do exactly what you've just described. Um, <laughs> So 
We are actually limited a little on time here, and that's completely my fault. Um, and I bet you that we're going to get through a few of the maybe 13 or 14 questions we have. Um, and I don't really want to rush each question either, because we might have a small snippet to say on some of them and a ridiculous amount on another, and I don't want to cut either of you short. Um, and also, I will, before I start, and I think that and, and I'd like to get your perspective on this as well, is, you know, we are all very similar in our training and our philosophies and how we think. And when I say training, I mean more probably our more recent training rather than kind of historically speaking. Yeah, because um, you guys run. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's right. And you don't do lots, do you, Cliff? No, I... I um... No, I don't. <laughs> I, walk and, I walk and I wrestle. Nice. Um, and in fact, I was just meaning our brain training. And so our, um, you know, our, you know, we were meant to school and what we did. But right. I, I think as well, though, it's important to, for people to um, appreciate that we will differ on certain things. And so our different perspectives and our different clientele that we may see might allow us for a different way to kind of look at things. So I think it's quite valuable to, even though we're in that same space in terms of how we feel about nutrition, I think it's a really valuable exercise to kind of answer questions from people just so they get a different viewpoint. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um... You know, you know, we often sort of look at different people as being more or less qualified or, you know, more or less experienced and all these various things. And we set up these arbitrary hierarchies, but everyone's different. And every practitioner has people that will mesh with them and they've got an approach that will mesh with different people. I mean, um, you know, from the perspective of Bella and I, I'm probably a bit more in the nerdy end of nutrition and and. Bell is very practical and applied. And so people get so much value out of that because there comes a point where you can know all about the theory, but if you can't translate that into practice, then mm. it doesn't really matter. Right. And the, probably the most important thing for nutrition is obviously compliance. And one of the biggest aspects of compliance is making good food simple. Totally that's agree. I love that. I love that side of nutrition and that's where I, that's where I geek out is with all the food and just the practical everyday habits and, and having fun with it. I feel like people stress too much about doing things wrong or, or not knowing the most up-to-date science on things. If it works, it works for some people. It may, it may not be something that works for someone else, but that, that doesn't matter. Yeah, awesome, Bella. And I've got to say, if no one, if anyone listening to this hasn't come across you on social media, then <laughs> I think they need to jump off this call and immediately go onto Instagram. <laughs> And check oh. out the latest salad bowl. Or oh, thank you. <laughs> um, what I love about you guys is that you just you keep it real. You know, you're like, hey, look, you know, this is what we're having for dinner. It's really simple. There's nothing particularly magical about it. Mm. And you know, we go out and have um, takeouts, or we stay in mm. and have takeouts. And, <laughs> yeah. and it just kind of forms part of your everyday life and and i can really see that with the things that you post bella um mm -hmm. cliff you don't post as often on instagram um as much as i engage with instagram so i often yeah. see bella more than you yeah. um, <laughs> but you i love how you you almost do this kind of um diary day to day of what you're doing with regards to your training how you're feeling and and things that resonate with you and 
I absolutely love that because you you know from the way that I kind of respond to your stuff, you're like, oh, I'm there, sister. Oh, I'm feeling it. <laughs> I love that. It's good to have feedback too because I feel like a lot of people, that's how they connect. You, you kind of watch and observe other people and what they're doing and you get inspired by them. And I think that's, that's just being human. It's cool. I like it. Yeah, totally. And yeah. people might think that I might resonate with what you say because, oh, we're both nutritionists. So yeah. we're similar but I think as people we're really different and it yeah. just really speaks to the broad you know like that people are going to resonate with with a lot of what you say and I just I always I see your stuff and I I love it when I see you on Instagram oh, well likewise so um guys we our first question actually is from Tania and so let's kind of dive right in um and I think how old I'll do this and this is the first time that I've done this as you know because um, we are recording pre-launch of Wikipedia. Um, so I think what I'll do is I'll just say what the question is and then we'll just kind of see how it flows and I'm sure that as time goes on we'll find <laughs> our kind of little groove. So Tanya is asks she's I just bought a BCAA and an EAA recovery powder. So that is a branched chain amino acid powder and an essential amino acid recovery powder. And I know that you guys know that, but I thought that I would, you know, spell it out. Um, I've been taking it before workout. Do I still need protein powder afterwards? Does it go on your weight how much you have? That's a good question, and it's very multi-layered because I guess that the first question is um, you know do I still need a protein powder afterwards and I'd say that that's not necessarily predicated on taking a BCAA or EAA beforehand mm. um, be because we now know that it's probably not as important to have protein either before or after training as was once thought right mm. um, so I think you know we've probably discussed this before my position on post-workout nutrition is that it's not necessary. And for a lot of people, it throws an extra sort of thing in there that they feel they have to do. And that can therefore be just an extra bit of brain space that we don't necessarily need to worry about for a lot of our, I guess, general population clients. On the other hand, I don't think it's without worth because for a lot of people, maybe athletes, even though the effect is not that great, there might still be some effect from having a post-workout protein drink. So if there's going to be any effect for a top level athlete, you're going to say, well, I'm going to take that effect because any improvement in performance or body composition, muscle mass is going to be a positive thing. And functionally for a lot of people, I find that they, they simply don't eat enough protein to thrive day to day. Now, of course they eat enough because everyone in the modern world eats enough protein to survive, but we're not really interested in that because we're interested in human potential, not just survival, right? And so for a lot of people having a post-workout protein drink, I find provides that extra little boost of protein that they need. They end up being protein sufficient day by day. And because it's something that's patterned in as a behavioral trigger, I train, then I have a shake. It becomes something that adds to consistency over time. <clears throat> so that's sort of my sort of perspective on the post-workout thing. If we slip back now to the EAAs and BCAAs before training, do EAAs before training and BCAAs as well have some impact on muscle protein synthesis? Yeah, they do. But I think what we've learned over probably the last 
10, 12 years. I remember watching um, some NSCA conference presentations on protein and everyone was into having EAAs before training. I think what we've realized in the last decade or so is that on balance, if your overall diet is protein sufficient, there's probably not that much need to have either EAAs or BCAAs immediately before training. The probably the one exception to that I'd say is if you're training for really long periods of time, uh, like let's say 90 minutes plus, I'd say there's some pretty good evidence that BCAAs can help improve cognition mm -hmm. during your uh, event or training. And that's particularly true towards the end stages of, of that training or event. So um, <clears throat> yeah, on balance, I think being protein sufficient is the key take home. EAAs, BCAAs before training, they might help. Uh, but whether you have a protein drink straight after training, I'd say has more to do with whether you're able to be protein replete overall. And if not, maybe it's a good chance to chuck some extra protein in there. Awesome. You, you, you always have a protein drink after training, eh, Bella? Yeah. Yeah, I do. It's a habit thing because I know that I under eat protein <clears throat> if I don't. And I can go really long periods of time without eating, especially if I've been active because I just don't, I don't know, I'm just not really that hungry after training. So I just do it even if I don't feel like it because it's just a habitual and I do notice a big difference when I do it too over time yeah it's um it's like you um uh Cliff I like f with regards to people who I talk to about the BCAA powder because I've I've started using that in addition to a protein powder um, and um, because I've kind of always been on that protein powder bandwagon because unlike a lot of people, I actually really like the, the taste, you know, like I, yeah. I have, there are very few protein powders that I don't particularly like the taste of, if I'm mm. honest, like most of them, I love it. Um, <laughs> I think it just harks back to my body for life days and, and, <laughs> and <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but with regards to the um, BCAAs, like I, for my endurance athletes, I get them to have um, some of it prior to training um, or even during their, their extended training sessions for the reason that you've described, Cliff, is that, you know, they are going to um, help with cognition. And also mm. in that lower carbohydrate space where a lot of us or us um, operate, the, there is a potential for kind of an increased kind of fuel substrate if that's available when glucose isn't. And I know that I was looking at a, a paper of, um, I think it was Louise Burke's last year, and they suggested that those protein requirements or the fuel requirements for amino acids might go up from about five to 10% actually in those longer events. So yeah. it can certainly be protective. And with the BCAAs, they are a, um, um, I looked at some research a few weeks ago, actually, to show that it's, it can potentially be beneficial from a delayed onset muscle soreness perspective. So yeah. that's, that's one place where they can be quite useful. So, and, and I think for me, I found the, that just having them straight after training, more so than before training, has been beneficial from a hydration perspective because I'm drinking something that I like. Mm. Uh, and particularly in winter when I find it more difficult, like most people, to, to get enough fluid. Um, but certainly from a recovery perspective, I found them super beneficial. The, the protein or the BCAAs or both? BCAAs. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think some of the earlier research, I'll have to remember now, but I think it showed that they encouraged... Uh, improve glycogen repletion mm. post-workout too. So, I mean, there's, there's consideration there as well.
Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting on that, um, before we move on, Cliff, the, the idea of, you know, whether or not your protein replete. And I wrote a little note here because, of course, you said, you know, everyone has enough protein to survive. And that is true, you know, like, and because actually those minimal amounts of protein, I, th I believe, are around an, like 46 grams for a woman and about 66 grams for a man. So, which equates to, you know, what, fifth, maybe two, 150 grams of chicken in total, or, you know, if that was all you were going to get in terms of protein each day, but it's that whole thriving. And I think this is where a lot of people get confused around, you know, what my protein should be, because they will see the health guidelines or the, the food guidelines suggesting that we need, you know, at least one serve of meat, fish, poultry or eggs, um, but that's really minimized compared to say those at least six servings of grains and at least five fruit and vegetables. But then if you kind of follow the lead of um, Stu Phillips at McMaster University, um, Don Lehman and, and, and their crowd, Eric Helms, a good mate of yours, um, you know, like where there's real uh, research to support that, you know, at least double that 0.8 grams per kg body weight per day or around that double in order to have sufficient protein um, is recommended. And then for an athlete or someone who trains, someone who might have um, issues regulating appetite, potentially bumping that up a little bit higher from a clinical perspective, yeah. um, I found super useful. No doubt. And I think it's pretty clear. I mean, the RDA amount is, is very much set at that, that level to avoid deficiency sy syndromes. Yeah. And that's true for every nutrient. And when we look at the, the range around which people can sit, some people will actually be okay and will be protein sufficient on as little as, I think from memory, about 0 0.5, 0 0.55 grams of protein per kilo body weight per day, which is pretty freaking low. Mm. Conversely, there's other people who will not um, reach optimal protein sufficiency, although they may be, you know, kind of okay, but it might not be up to sort of one gram or more, you know, protein per kilo body weight per day. But I think it's pretty clear that if we start to look at what actually helps to support muscle in the long term to reduce sarcopenia and encourage, you know, some of the more optimal results in terms of satiety in particular and other things, blood glucose regulation through optimal gluconeogenesis and all sorts of things, we're really looking at a minimum of 1.2. And I think that's pretty well known now. I would say it's even higher because a lot of the authors who have sort of done that research around the 1.2 mark for older athletes are suggesting that attention should be paid to increasing that even more because that is a minimum threshold again. And so I really think that we need to look at that 1.4 grams, which is the lower threshold as suggested by the International Society of Sports Nutrition. I don't think that should just be limited to athletes. Mm. And we've talked about that because in our study on MCTs, we decided that we would give them, you know, 1.4 grams of protein per kilo body weight per day because at the heart of it, humans are athletes, mm. right? You, you can't get away from 100,000 years of evolution in which you've been running around and pulling things and climbing over shit and dragging things around and chasing things and not be a an athlete. The fact that people aren't athletes now is inconsequential because you can choose to do that. But the reality is if you're going to thrive, you got to move, you got to eat protein, you got to get enough sleep, all those various things that start to then compound. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's, um, it's, you know, Bella, you're one of the few nutritionists I see on social media um, promoting the protein message and, and, you know, real food protein and, and yeah. things like that as well. Like, I do love you, it. Yeah, and do you, with your clients, like are they, like, how resistant or otherwise are they to, you know, the, the idea that we are athletes and we do need protein and real food protein and, and things like that? Do you come up against that with some clients or? I, I actually don't see clients I studied as a clinical nutritionist so that's yeah. my my background is in that um but I I've never actually practiced in clinic but I do get people that obviously ask me for advice a lot yeah. um and yeah one of the main things that I tell them is to up their protein I think it's really important especially for women well not especially for women men and women but I think a lot of people think that um yeah, they, they over they overcomplicate things. If you base a meal on protein and make sure you've got enough vegetables, you're you're basically all the way there. There's not really else much you need to do. Yeah. And you do feel so much better. Hundred percent agree with yeah. that. And I think like it's not often you see like a woman with a like massive steak on her plate, basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I eat a lot of protein. Yeah. I, I find if I don't, I snack more. I um I don't sleep as well. I yeah, so many things start to kind of spiral out of control if I don't keep on top of that. So it is it's important. Yeah. Yeah. I think what one one thing that's underappreciated and Bella just mentioned it with protein intake is adherence to a, a an otherwise healthy diet outside of that. Hmm. And I know from experience, I know from doing it, I know from working with, you know, probably thousands of clients over 23 years that if you're eating enough protein, you're far less likely to overeat, say, after dinner. Mm. That's just a, a really common finding, right? And, you know, I did that little article on does protein reduce sugar cravings? And the, the simple answer is yes, it does. But it's not because it reduces sugar cravings. Protein reduces cravings for everything. Yeah. It reduces craving for food full stop because it's so freaking satiating. So they found there's no difference in the macros that people, you know, desire after eating a high-protein meal. It's just they desire to eat less. Mm. And that's really powerful because if we can have the bottom up approach and the top down, because generally nutrition is about the top down, right? You moder you moderate your portions, you restrict yourself to certain amounts, you snack and graze through the day and all these rubbish sort of things that we've heard for so long. Sure. We've got to have willpower, but if we also have the bottom up approach where our physiology is not driving us to crave as much becomes a lot easier. Right. And also it means we can remove a lot of the, the sort of negative diet culture bullshit because if you've if you're replete in protein and you're replete in essential fatty acids and you're replete in micronutrients you're way way less likely to overeat say after dinner and then you can probably say hey if i want to have a chocolate biscuit that's fine mm, yeah. because you're just not as likely to eat three packs yeah. yes oh 100% and you know i was speaking to a client earlier this morning and I, I had this exact conversation with her in that, you know, well, one, she was worried that her uh, calorie intake across the board was really low. And she reported that she was having 900 calories a day. And I'm like, yeah, that is really super low, you know, like it's, um, you know, I think that we really need to start working on getting that up, focusing on these kind of nutrient rich foods. Um, and then as the conversation progressed, um, she also um, said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm good on my diet. I'm quote unquote good on this 900 calorie a day diet. Monday, Tuesday, definitely. Wednesday, some of the time, 
it's all over on Thursday and at three o'clock legit I'm having a packet of chocolate biscuits yep. and that happened you know say five days out of a fortnight so um and and in part and I'm thinking okay I'm going to reassess this idea that your calorie intake is actually too low just because if we look at the big picture of it and you're thinking about a seven day intake and of course you can split it up into four days or three days in terms of your average calorie intake or however you want to do it. But I think, you know, it's certainly not like a, a um, kind of a till at the end of the day at a shop where everything kind of balances and you start afresh. Um, her caloric intake actually probably was fine. It was just that she was getting so many of her calories from the junk food because she was restricting in those really good nutrient source foods across the week. And, you know, so many women, and this is a real classic thing, um, you know, we are very good at eating salads, super good at eating salads mm. with 50, 40 grams of chicken, you know, um, <laughs> or one of those small little cans of tuna or salmon. Um, and, and in fairness, it is pretty difficult to eat a, a large can of that if you're not really in that fishy kind of mood. Yeah. But, but the, the idea that that small amount, that 11 grams of protein in a massive salad is a satisfying, satiating meal for longer than the half hour mm. that fiber might have um, in terms of in your system is, is one of the things which I kind of constantly talk to people about. Mm. Yeah. And, and mindset is a huge thing too, because if, if you reframe the way you view your diet, like for our, Cliff and I, we have treat night every Friday. So we leave ourselves just eat whatever we want. It doesn't have to be nutritious, obviously. It never is. <laughs> well, it is, but it's, it's, it's whatever we feel like. There's nothing off the table. And it's, it's changed everything because you don't feel guilt. You don't feel shame. It's empowering. Yeah. It's, it's, it is what it is. Okay. Especially if we, have basically spent mm. the whole week either fasting or maybe under eating because we're stressed or it, it doesn't matter because every week's the same. Yeah. So it's how you feel about it afterwards that I think is the most important thing. And that's the fine line. I think sometimes when you say, well, we'll do these certain things in order to, for our physiology to not drive that excessive sort of overeating of, you know, treat foods some people then take that as a criticism because they say, well, you know, why can't I eat what I feel like? It's like, well, you can, I, I'm not placing any judgment on you whatsoever. I just know that to allow that freedom and to not have guilt and shame and to be able to have your treats and things, that doesn't mean that you don't want to be replete in all the things your body needs to thrive and for you to feel as good as you can. Because I'm, I'm really beginning to think more and more that one of our biggest problems, I mean, protein repletion is a big thing because it drives all that stuff we've been talking about. But I'm really beginning to believe that micronutrient insufficiency on a range of different levels, there's a lot there that goes into that, is one of our biggest health challenges. And the support for that is that I'm just seeing so many clients for whom you can practically reverse their condition through the intelligent application of micronutrients, mm. right? It's, it's super, I've just, I'm just publishing in a medical journal, a case study on a child with alopecia. Uh, and within five months, we were able to completely reverse his autoimmune alopecia, alopecia areata, um, through basically a, not a, a free from, but a gluten and dairy reduced diet. Mm -hmm. There's still some freedom and flexibility there. 
um, and the application of a multi additional vitamin D and additional zinc. And the, the, the data is there. There's actually a lot of research to show that people with alopecia and a lot of other autoimmune conditions are typically insufficient in zinc and vitamin D. And it's not just because we tend to not take in enough of those things. Mm. There's also genetic polymorphisms where a lot of people with particularly autoimmune conditions have some degree of inability to use those nutrients, whether it's absorption, transport, um, storage or utilization. There's some mm. challenge there. And that's you know becoming more and more well-known because the, the research is kind of there. Mm. So I know I'm going a little bit tangential here, but one of the reasons why I'm starting to post or starting to publish case studies is because often if there's not those case studies, we don't have the hypothesis drivers that cause further research. And then the, the orthodox sort of medical community don't take any notice, but the indicative research is all there. We just now need the sort of clinical provings to, to be put in place so that people can say, well, this is an interesting option here. Yeah, for sure. And I think whilst this conversation has, um, moved away from the idea of protein powders and essential amino acids and things like that. It's like such a valuable conversation to have because, you know, we're often, we talk about um, restricting, removing, eliminating. Um, these are words that we use when we're trying to correct kind of chronic conditions or help someone improve body composition and, and things like that, as opposed to, you know, what are the opportunities to increase mm. the micronutrient content in the nutrients in your diet. So it's a, a almost a reframe on that. And mm. um, if we're thinking about protein from, from whole food sources as opposed to protein powders, then of course you and I'm not suggesting that Tanya go and eat a big chicken after her, her workout, you know, immediately after or you know, in and around if it's not part of a meal, but mm. you know, meat and eggs and fish bring with it a lot of those micronutrients which are missing in the diet in part because real food protein is a, is a really good vehicle for it, but actually just a whole food diet is a really good vehicle for micronutrients. 100%. Yeah. And there, there's probably, you know, that, that's one of the big challenges is we, we eat a lot of ultra refined food. I know there's still some diet in the world, Orthodox people who say, well, these, all these definitions that are thrown around are pretty arbitrary. Yeah, we, we accept that they are arbitrary. There's no absolute definition for what an unrefined or ultra refined or processed food is, but we can collectively all understand what it is. Mm. You know, it's like no, very few of us know why the sky is blue, but we know it's blue. Um, and that is one of our big challenges is that we have this preponderance of ultra refined foods. We've got a food environment that quite frankly sucks. And that leads people to be devoid, not devoid, but at least insufficient in a lot of nutrients. Mm. And so it makes sense just to sort of crowd in those nutrients and then the rest typically takes care of itself. Mm. And then we have bidirectional relationships with everything else all the way through from gut health to stress, to sleep, um, to, you know, media exposure, all those various things that play into health as well. Mm. They're all interrelated in a very complex web. Yeah, for sure. And, um, and Cliff, if I can ask, like with regards to your case study with that autoimmune condition, um, what was it that made you kind of go, right, let's go dairy gluten low rather than dairy gluten free? So what was the decision around that? Just to, just to completely go off our original <laughs> topic. The, the main consideration was that the, 
I wanted to make it as easy as possible. And for particularly a young family, uh, it, it can be very confronting to, to just have all these eliminations. Now, of course you would do it if there's incredibly clear evidence. Like if you've got um, a, a celiac patient, you're not going to say, well, you know, just cut back bread a little bit. You're going to say, you know what, you, you've got to go gluten-free. Yeah. But in this case, the, the evidence wasn't unequivocal that either a dairy or gluten-free diet would, would help the clinical course. We would have the suggestion that a reduced dairy or reduced gluten diet would based on all the other autoimmune evidence we have. So we were basically starting off with a, sort of avoid wherever possible, but occasionally if you're going to be out or whatever, I wouldn't like basically just don't stress about it too much. And also the evidence is a lot stronger that certain key things, probably in order vitamin D at the top, then zinc, then vitamin A, and then a raft of other nutrients are, are going to have probably the biggest impact based on the evidence on the clinical course of this condition. And so we basically, I, I prioritize those things. Mm. And then the rest was, um, given a little bit more freedom just to really ensure compliance. Mm. You know, and I, I know from experience, I have an autoimmune condition and I know that excessive amounts of dairy are, are really not good for me, just as a sort of end of one example. But I can get away with a little bit. Mm. And I, I like having that freedom and flexibility. Otherwise, the tendency might be if I just can't have it at all, I'll tend to just say, I'll bugger it. I'll, I'll just have it anyway. Yeah. And I think that in real life, for people who aren't experiencing um, like an autoimmune condition or a, a health um, complication that might lead to, you know, an elimination approach, then you just on the other end of the spectrum, that's just a good philosophy in terms of every life with everyday life with what Bella was referring to with regards to your treat night mm -hmm. um, versus just you eating consistently um, uh, across the course of the week outside of that kind of Friday night. Yeah. I, I think the human body is very resilient and I think often we take what we see in pathologies and then we say, well, because we see certain things in pathologies, that must be true for everybody. And that's really common with, with dairy as an example. Most people, if you ask them, is dairy an inflammatory food? Most people with an interest in nutrition, I think would say, yeah, probably. But the evidence tells us it's not. In fact, when we look at the inflammatory results or the inflammatory effects of dairy in most people, it would be considered to be anti-inflammatory because it helps to modulate inflammation. Now, whether that's because of people getting a bit more protein or maybe a little bit more calcium, whatever it happens to be, not 100% sure. But the, the evidence is pretty clear that dairy is fine for most people most of the time. However, if you do have an underlying allergy to protein, which is commonly underdiagnosed, if you have an autoimmune or inflammatory condition, it's likely to be the other way. Mm. And, you know, I, I did a review on, on that topic as well. And, you know, summarized all the research and it's, it's pretty clear. So it's just a, a matter of forces for courses. And that gives us a lot of freedom because if we suddenly think, well, everything's out to get me, right? Gluten's out to get me. So some populations like, you know, Swiss farmers have basically lived on bread and cheese and had a really long life. Yeah. To, you know, absent most of the illnesses of the modern world. We can't say that though they've been just lucky to avoid the, the gluten dairy bogeyman. So it really depends on, on where you're at. And that's why I always say to people, and I know, you know, Bella's the same. They say, oh, should I be eating this? It's like, I don't know, should you? Like, mm. are you achieving the results you want? Yeah. Well, 
keep fill your boots, keep keep doing it, you know. Yeah, totally. I, I also think you shouldn't. Um, you should always think about as well how powerful your mind can be around things. Like you can truly convince yourself that something's going to make you sick. And if you think about it and think about it and think about it, dairy makes me, dairy is going to make me, my skin break out or, or, or my gut's going to explode and get bloated or whatever. And you basically convince yourself it's going to happen every time you eat it. It probably will. So yeah, I think it's something to be aware of as well. People can convince themselves something's wrong when it's actually not the case at all. Mind body ramifications of that stuff, as Bella says, is, is huge. And I, I can't remember the nuances of a lot of the studies that I, I read back in the day. Because I started my postgrad in, in my body healthcare, right? Having worked a lot in the mind-body realm in my clinical practice for, for many years. And I was blown away by some of the impact that that had, you know, where people would literally get sick because they believed that they were eating, glu eating gluten, even though it was a gluten-free meal. And, you know, it, it's not that it's unknown. We know the placebo effect exists. And that sort of nocebo effect occurs with, with foods as well as with pharmaceuticals where we would tend to sort of, um, you know, which is where the word is derived from. Um, but, but I think we all need to be very aware of that because we, we all fall into the trap of it. Mm. You know, yeah. And we're all trying to figure out what's best for our health. Totally. Now, now just for, for clarification, placebo effect, explain that and then explain nocebo effect, because I think people are, are, may be familiar with placebo, but might need a bit of a refresher. But nocebo is something which you hear a little bit, but not probably often enough to have a good grasp on what that actually means. I'm glad you caught me out on that, because I, I really hope I don't get it wrong. But the placebo effect is basically when you see a positive effect from something that is inert. Mm. And that, that always happens. You know, we, we know that it happens, but I think we, because it's such a common thing, we forget how important it is. We, we forget that it is a direct indication of the power of the mind in every single research study, where you'll basically see an improvement above baseline due to a placebo. Then if something works even better than that, we know that it's active mm. and that's fantastic. But what we all, all, all quite often discount is the fact that, hey, a, a whole bunch of people got really good results from nothing but the power of the mind. Yeah. Yeah. Conversely, the, the nocebo effect is when we get a negative effect from something because we believe it will drive effect. And there's a, 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 corollary, a corollary to that as well, which is super interesting. The nocebo effect, where you might get a negative effect from something, um, can, can be again driven by the mind because you believe that something is going to cause a negative effect or there's going to be side effects. Now, whether the side effects are caused by, let's say, a drug or not, so whether it's a true negative effect or a nocebo effect, that can also potentially drive a um, sort of active placebo effect as well, where the placebo effect is heightened because you've had an effect. Yes, you're moving at both ends of the scale rather than everything staying in one place, but something is, is shifting in one direction. Exactly. And all of these things are well studied. You know, you give people yeah. sugar pills and, and some people will say, oh, well, the sugar pill caused them. Well, no, it didn't because there was nothing and there was like five milligrams or something of sugar. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, they, they basically give someone that tiny, tiny dose of something or a completely inert substance and they'll, they'll get an effect from it. So mm -hmm. I just think it's fascinating because, um, oh, there was actually that study where they told people 
You, you remember the one where they told people they were either drinking a weight gain shake or a weight loss shake? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And their um, satiety hormones, I think it was. It was sort of, I think it was ghrelin and things like that were, were quite different. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if the authors have followed that up yet, but um, that's something that I know we discussed as a potential project as well, was to do some functional outcome testing on, on certain things like that. Yeah, and interesting, what I what I also springs to mind as a study in that gluten um, um, research, maybe it was published last year or the year before, time is flying, um, where people who said they had a gluten sensitivity but did not have a, um, but, but weren't celiac, they, uh, I'm trying to remember which, in which direction it went in, but they, um, they were told that what they were eating had gluten in it, um, and not, and then they, mm. you know, they, their response to the food in terms of their physiological or physical reaction was actually based on what they were told and not necessarily what they were provided. So exactly what we were re- referring to, like you believe you've got an issue with gluten, you're mm. probably going to have an issue with gluten. And I think, you know, when you're talking to clients and, and you're working with them in terms of what might be an inflammatory trigger and so you're pulling things out of the diet, that reintroduction phase... Um, is super important to like it, it it can be important to kind of isolate what is triggering the 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 potential negative impact but you don't want to overstate it to the point where the client is so scared to have it that mm. you could be giving them water and they'll be having some kind of rash or bloating yeah. or you know physical response because of their that whole mindset around it mm. and i think as nutritionists we can fall into the trap sometimes of you know if, if if all you've got is a hammer, every problem appears to be a nail, right? Yeah. And we can fall into the trap sometimes of thinking that we, you know, we can sort of sort everything out with nutrition. It's mm. bound to be something in the diet, right? It's bound to be something inflammatory or some trigger or something that's driving an, an allergy response in that individual. And sometimes it can be, but sometimes two things can be true as well. You know, I've had clients for whom that they have a bunch of skin conditions, and we get on top of nutrition and a whole bunch of lifestyle stuff and most of it abates, but they might have several different skin conditions and some of which are probably in all reality. Like maybe it's something we haven't discovered and we need to keep digging or maybe it's just something else. Yeah. You know, there are certain skin conditions that are almost identical that can be caused by, um, say a, a psoriatic type condition that's often associated with those internal triggers of inflammation, which is very heavily linked to diet and lifestyle stuff. And you've got the same types of plaques that are a slightly different condition that can just be caused by sun exposure in, um, you know, the early years, excessive sun exposure when you're a kid or something. And, and that's a lot more difficult to then work with as an adult, because you might not ever be able to properly get on top of that or, you know, eliminate it completely just because it's got a whole different etiology to it. Yeah. And we're scratching the surface. You know, I talked with my, one of my first mind body teachers, brilliant guy up in Canada. We used to talk about, you know, all these things that we're only just beginning to learn about the the mind body realm and what sort of in scientific terms is known as psychoneurophysiology, that interplay between what we consider to be the mind. We don't really know what it is. And then neurophysiology into gross physiology, all the various effects there. And we would talk about it in the terms of we're like cavemen, just 
chipping away with stone tools at the moment. We've got no freaking idea, really, the complexity of what's going on. The gut's a good, a good example of that. Mm. You can know a lot about gut health and still know absolutely if all about the whole thing. <laughs> Completely. And I think it's, you know, everything is super complex, but we have to kind of approach each problem with the, you know, what are the simple things that we can do? Because if you, you can just go down the rabbit hole so much, and then you end up just being like, or at least for me, it's almost like, like I get this inertia because I'm stuck and you can't kind of find a way out because you are thinking too much and you're overanalyzing it too much. And, and yeah. I think it's, you know, it's true of kind of almost anyone who's kind of interested in the nutrition space, who's taking a deep dive into one thing or another. And that's actually what I notice mostly with questions that I get. It's almost like you just want to tell people to stop thinking so hard. It's like, it's just, it's so much more simple than I think a lot of people realize. Like, I, I mean, I, I've studied nutrition. I, 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 it's a passion. I enjoy it, but I know, like I know barely nothing compared to most people that are out there and have been doing it for 15, 20, 30, 40 years. But I think the thing that rings true every time is there are basics that if you've covered off the bases of, of health, sleep, just making sure you're eating things that make you feel good. You, you're looking after your mind, you're going for walks, you're being in nature enough, you're getting fresh air, getting sun, then all the other stuff that comes into it, they're basically just tools like supplements and stuff. You can start playing with that, but it's not as important as people think. Or it's not as complicated, I think, as people think it is. Completely. And, yeah. you know, like with, with running shoes I've had, I've known immediately from putting them on whether they're going to be a good fit and a good shoe for me, just from how they feel. You know, it doesn't matter what kind of bells and whistles come with them. And it's almost like diet and your diet practices should guide you in what you do as well in, in terms of how it makes you feel. So for Tanya, you know, like if she is having her branch chain amino acid powder and then her protein afterwards and feeling awesome and it's, exactly. and yeah, she's working towards her goals. Yeah. Keep doing it, Tanya. Exactly. Yeah. It feels yeah. good. Keep doing it. Totally. Hey, um, so that's 50 minutes down in one piece of data. Um, we'll get another one in there. <laughs> I think we can get another one in. Um, and so Debbie asks, so Debbie's never been a coffee drinker. Mm. Really? No, just <laughs> um, but she appreciates the benefits of a caffeine hit, especially pre-workout. So what are you guys, what are your suggestions for getting the hit from another source? I, I, I'm just doing a review on caffeine at the moment. And I think one thing that's pretty clear is that the doses that have been used in the studies are really freaking high. Mm. And so a lot of the suggested dosing is we don't even know if it's optimal per se, but there's a, a pretty big range and it's like three to nine milligrams per kilo body weight. So just do the math on that, even at the lower end, like for me, that's um, basically three cups of coffee, right? Yeah. before training as being the optimal dose. And I just think that's not sustainable for most people most of the time. Mm. Now, it might be okay, but it's at the upper limit as well of what we would consider to be that sort of optimum amount for health. So my advice is if you don't drink coffee, because I think coffee is probably the best delivery system for caffeine because it's got other health benefits if you are going to use it. But if you don't like coffee, the best thing I think would be to titrate your dose of green tea Mm. Um, and basically just start with like, you know, maybe one 
bag of using bags or one teaspoon of using teaspoons, there's probably going to be about 30 odd milligrams of caffeine in there. Um, try that. And if that improves your performance and that's all you need, then great. Maybe titrate it up to a dose where you, you feel best. Um, or you can, of course, just get some caffeine tablets. But I tend to go for the whole food sources of caffeine just because there's ancillary benefits as well. Mm, nice. And Bella, what about you? Are you a green tea girl? Is that what you're drinking uh, right now? No, I'm not drinking green tea. I'm actually got water. But I, I would all fight a biocer in it, so probiotics. Yeah. But um, yeah, if, I, if I'm not drinking coffee and I need a good boost of energy or some extra support, I would probably go and have a little bit of cordyceps mushroom if that's something that someone might be open to trying. But um, yeah, or just a black tea. I, I think, I think, again, collectively, it's everything that's working together. So I don't, I generally don't need those things if I've had a good sleep and I've been eating enough protein, drinking enough water. But, but yeah, I think if you're an athlete and you're looking for an extra thing, an extra boost, you yeah, cordyceps, MCTs. Okay, and cordyceps, so a mushroom, so what is it, um, how does that work? Like, how's that going to make me feel better? Uh, I'll leave that with you, Cliff. What's that? What's the, there's some cool research around that. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I know there is, but I just yeah. don't know it myself. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, but the, the research on most of the mushrooms is, is really emerging. So there's not a huge amount, but there's, there's enough that we start to see a lot sort of coming out, right, in different, slightly different areas. But cordyceps is kind of known to be the, uh, I guess, the, the endurance-boosting mushroom, and it's been shown to increase uh, VO2 and, and power production and all sorts of things in human studies. Um, so it's become really popular, particularly in endurance circles, for that reason. Nice. Because I, yeah, and, and there's another question actually later on, which we will need to leave for another time around mushrooms. Um, and, and people are wanting your insights because they, I think they may have seen that you've published a review you're, or you're about to publish a review on them, which clearly I haven't read. Clearly Bella hasn't read either. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not very good at citing research. As soon no, as no. I'm asked that question, it all goes out of my head. Mate, I'm exactly the same. Oh, so I totally right. know. Um, <laughs> now, now, around that green tea thing, because I have yet to find a green tea that I like, actually. And I, and I want to like it because it is what all healthy people like to drink. Um, and so it's a little bit of FOMO of I'm kind of missing out here because I'm sure that I would benefit, but outside, like I have tried and liked matcha tea. So, mm. um, so Debbie, if you aren't necessarily a green tea lover, um, the matcha powder, which I have made with like almond milk and I put stevia in it as well, just because yeah, I do too. Yeah, it's just yeah. takes the edge off. Um, <laughs> um, and that can be a nice way to do it. But, you know, how else might someone enjoy green tea? Well, there's lots of different types, of course. There's, you know, you can get white teas and mm. various types of green tea, which are more or less sort of fermented and changes the flavor profile quite a bit. But, you know, as Bella said, black tea is great as well. And, mm. you know, a lot of people are just so habituated to drinking black tea in the yeah. sort of anglophone world that um, black tea has uh, most of, I mean, almost all the same benefits that green tea has. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, if you want a decent whack of caffeine, you can just double up the, the brew. Yeah, of course. And then yeah, you're getting 60 odd megs. You know, it's, it, it's not that far removed from a coffee, but it is going to be a little bit smoother because the theanine in the tea is going to sort of 
um, change the metabolism of those xanthins and give you a slightly more sort of sustained and less um, spiked response. Mm. Mm. So that might be quite good in an endurance space then, more so than, I don't know, a CrossFit. I'm just thinking of the practical application of that and what might. It's also if you tend to be an over, like hyper responder yeah. to caffeine and, and you don't want to have quite the same spike. Yeah. Um, can be a bit gentler, but you still get the some of the ergogenic benefits. And I think, I think from memory, maybe it's Eric Trexler, um, who's a buddy of Eric Helms. Mm. I think they've done a little review on low dose um, caffeine mm-hmm. because so much of the research was geared towards these really big doses. I think they've started to say, see that there is a benefit, even though it might not be so pronounced, but it might certainly be more doable for people and a lot more sustainable. So those lower doses of caffeine still have an effect nice and i like bella you um suggesting something else outside of caffeine just because i know there's research out there to suggest that actually for people who don't habitually drink coffee um there may be a reason for that and that's that they might not respond that well to caffeine so they you know that's not something they're drawn to and in fact if you don't respond well there are genetic polymorphisms which mean in fact, it's detrimental to have caffeine. So kind of looking outside of that caffeine um, for something else, like the, the cordyceps is you know, a really good option. And I know that the Nutrition Online store sells life cycle. Mm. And do you guys also have Four Sigmatic, which yes, might yeah, we do. Yeah. We've got the teas as well. So there is the coffee. But mm. um, yeah, the, the, the cordyceps elixirs actually taste really good. And then you've got yeah. the extracts, which you can basically squirt into anything or under your tongue. Yeah, yeah, they're really popular. People love them. It's it's probably worth saying as well that most people who have a challenge with caffeinated beverages, it's because of the caffeine, but not everyone. Yeah. That's why there can be different responses. And, um, you know, for example, for some people with rheumatoid arthritis, even if it's not diagnosed through rheumatoid factors, because you can have non-rheumatoid factor rheumatoid arthritis, Mm -hmm. there are a subset of people who that their pain is not driven by caffeine, but it's upped markedly by coffee. And they discovered that because the, the responses to decaf coffee were actually worse because the processing heightened some of the compounds that were directly inflammatory for that condition. Mm. So it's super interesting because that's why you see some different differential results when um, they, they look at broad research that covers like caffeinated beverages. So you're looking at tea and coffee and, all this kind of stuff. Or when you look at coffee compared to say caffeine, there can be different responses. And it's because all these people are responding to, to sort of different aspects of, of the drink. Yeah, super interesting, eh? Because there is so outside of the, the caffeine, there's a lot of other polyphenols, right, that are potentially creating the issue. Or but and I suppose it come that's it's it must vary for so many people as well. And again, it's like dairy, right? For most people caffeine or sorry coffee is considered a very healthy drink because the evidence shows pretty unequivocally that you know caffeine coffee i should say um is associated with all these various health benefits from reduced liver disease reduced cardiovascular disease you know uh, reduced rates of certain cancers all sorts of things but then again for some people that's not going to be true yeah. And so we, we don't want to vilify any one particular food because, hey, it might be awesome for you. And, and coffee is awesome, but I'm not drinking it at the moment for those very reasons. I wouldn't tell a client to not drink it because, hey, if, if it 
gets them going and it's got all these other health benefits. It's nutrient dense, you know, really high in antioxidants and things. Fantastic. We don't call them antioxidants anymore, do we, Mickey? I, I call them um, environmental, hormetic, epigenomic modulators. Mate, okay, you did not send me that memo. I had no idea. Now I've got something else to learn. <laughs> hey, um, now, guys, that was awesome. We've just spent an hour going through two of the 14 questions that we have. Um, can I um, request your presence again in the not too distant future to continue on with this list of amazing questions that people have and they just really want to pick your brain on, as do I, because I just, I know that we went down rabbit holes, but this is mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I set this up because I knew we would and I was really looking forward to it. I might need to do a Joe Rogan style one next time, spend yeah. four hours talking about stuff. Okay. <laughs> I would love that. Um, so um, thank you guys so much. and. Awesome. Um, we will pick this up um, next time. Awesome, awesome. mix there. Part two. So, team. As I said, um, yeah, we only got through a couple of those questions, but hopefully you found it super interesting. And you are going to find Cliff over at Cliff Harvey PhD and Bella over at Bella Nutritionist, where they share heaps of practical and interesting information on Instagram and Facebook. And next week, I'm going to be sitting down chatting with Lily Nichols, who's a registered dietitian over in the States and is well known for her work with gestational diabetes, real food and pregnancy. And I can't wait to share with you um, our discussion on challenging those conventional norms of nutrition in and around the um, pregnancy, childbirth um, time of life. Until that time, if you have any questions you want me to answer, please don't hesitate to contact me via uh, my website, mickeywillardin.com, or hit me up on Facebook at Nutrition, or over on Instagram or Twitter at mickeywillardin. And more than happy to take them and help, uh, help you out with your nutrition-related needs. And along with that, I do have meal plans available on my website and am available for consultations online too. So really look forward to touching base with you. If you like the podcast, please hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star review. That would be amazing. Great. So good to um, have you join me today and catch you all next week.